This is Unfiltered, episode 165 for November 4th, 2015. Tonight, in this new propaganda video, ISIS is again claiming credit for downing the commercial airliner, calling Russian leader Vladimir Putin a pig and warning he will pay a, quote, high price for his actions in Syria. The group offered no proof, and intelligence analysts tell CNN they don't find the claim credible. But sources say the U.S. has not ruled out the possibility of terror. Welcome to Unfiltered Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that should be, hopefully, distracting you from all of that TV you really shouldn't be watching, giving you the news in one easy-to-digest podcast. My name is Chris, and we have a great show this week. There's a lot of things going on that I thought, actually coming in to the studio to work on the show this week, I thought, boy, we got a lot of different news stories, but I don't know what the main theme is. And then sitting down and actually putting all of the clips together... Some really interesting things jumped out at me. So 165, you know, one of the things we're going to bring back in 165 is the show me the money segment. There's some really interesting things going on in defense spending that we're going to talk about this week. But uh, also, the Russia-Syria situation is progressing. There's some interesting talks going on. And you probably heard about that Metrojet crash. We're going to talk about that as well and how that all actually ties in, how it's all actually interrelated. Some brief updates on the third Republican upda- uh, uh, debate and uh, why they're all upset, and why I am pretty firmly convinced it was all premeditated. They knew the hard questions were coming, and they were prepared for it, and I have the clip, I think, that proves it. Although, I'll let you be the judge. We'll get to that. And then later in the show, you know about airport security and those full-body scanners? Do you know how actually bad they are when they even test themselves? You know, everybody expects maybe when a third-party auditor comes in and tests security that it would be kind of weak. But what about when the TSA actually tests itself? You won't believe how bad they failed, how bad how bad they failed. And then we end the show with a high note. Yes, we actually have a high note this week. All right, but first, let's get into the terrorism section, and I want to talk about uh, the money. So, you know, you hear a lot about bailing out the U.S. economy. That's something that we've talked about for a while, quantitative easing, the Fed adjusting the rate, which is something that had some discussion today. And one thing we don't talk a lot about, in fact, maybe you might say at all, is the fact that we're also bailing out the Iraqi economy. Well, happening now, whether you know it or not, the United States regularly is sending billions of dollars to Baghdad to fund the country's central bank. Now, the Wall Street Journal exposing some major concerns that those American dollars are potentially going to ISIS. And apparently... This <laughs> Wait, what? Now, think about what she just said. Think about what she said. Hold on. That, that was just a few seconds long. Let's, let's play this whole thing back. Let's play this back. The United States regularly is sending billions of dollars... Billions of dollars... ...to Baghdad to fund the country's central bank. To the central bank. And somehow, billions of dollars going to the central bank are ending up in ISIS's hands? Now, how could that be happening? Now, the Wall Street Journal exposing some major concerns that those American dollars are potentially going to ISIS. Oops. And apparently, this was so much of a concern for our Treasury Department that it temporarily cut off funds just a few months ago, sparking fears of an economic crisis in Baghdad. Is that when they're also looking at the Toyotas? For more on this, Jonathan Schanzer joins us, vice president of research at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies and, importantly, a former terrorism analyst at the Treasury Department. So you know how a lot of this works, Jonathan. I hate to admit it, but I really had no idea that 
we were sending U.S. dollars in huge amounts to Baghdad on a regular basis. Why are we doing that? Well, basically, uh, the Iraqi economy runs on uh, cash. That uh, because of the fact that it's a war-torn society, uh, credit has been a little bit difficult to come. We prop up their economy. Come by, uh, and so Iraqis prefer to deal in dollars. This the Iraqis are dealing in dollars. Can you imagine this? Because of the fact that it's a war-torn society, uh, credit has been a little bit difficult to come by, uh, and so Iraqis prefer to deal in dollars. This is the denomination, the, the currency that most countries like to deal with. It's um, it's something that people trust. The, the greenback is that way everywhere in just about every war zone. Uh, and this is kind of one of the lingering after effects of the war. So the New York Federal Reserve holds these dollars. These are not U.S. taxpayer dollars, right, Correct. Jonathan? This is money that does belong to the Iraqis. Right. purchased through Iraqi oil. Interesting. So we're sending that money on a regular basis. Why? Why can't we just keep it in Iraq? Why do we keep it in the New York Fed? Well, the, I mean, they're actually, they're buying this, uh, these pallets of cash. I mean, our understanding is they're shipped over there in fairly large sums, uh, and then they're auctioned off. So you've got, you know, large businesses, small businesses, individuals that are taking out loans. Uh, and this is the way that uh, the economy has been functioning. So then connect the dots if you can for us. Why was there such a concern that this money was going to the Iraqi government and then going to ISIS? Well, it was actually ISIS and Iran, both equally troubling. <laughs> uh, and according to this report, it seems that uh, that some of this money was being auctioned off to places near ISIS-controlled territory or perhaps through ISIS middlemen. Uh, so that means that the dollars were uh, heading CIA. into ISIS-controlled territory. Uh, and also, we know that Iran has had a significant influence in Baghdad since our um, announcement that we were intending to leave. Uh, Iran has uh, very slowly but surely uh, kind of been strangling Iraq. And so they were also benefiting from these dollars. What's your understanding of this is a huge story. Are you guys grokking what a big story this is? How much better we've gotten at following this money, because what happened several months ago is that the United States said, no, we're not going to send any more money. Then we decided, OK, it looks like we have a little bit of an idea of what's happening there, some more controls. And we ended up sending a half billion dollars in crates to Baghdad to kind of catch up to make sure that an economic crisis didn't happen inside Baghdad. So what now? Is it safer? Right. Well, I mean, I've got to assume that it's safer. It looks like the Treasury's got a better handle on this. But I think we've got to point out here that ISIS controls significant chunks of Iraq. And so you've got to be incredibly careful where you send the, that cash, where you allow these loans uh, to be taken out. And of course, the fact that Iran has significant control over Baghdad, it seems like it's kind of a foregone conclusion that they're going to benefit from this in some way or another. Should we continue doing this? Look, this is ultimately up to what Treasury's intel is showing and how much they're able to control this. I have doubts as we continue to say we want out of the Middle East, as we don't want to deal with uh, Iraq, as we have kind of this light footprint with ISIS, that we're going to be able to have this significant control. Uh, my, my prediction here is that we find ourselves in a crisis situation yet again huh. as we find out more about how this money is being used. Let me ask you about leverage, though. Obviously, we're providing the currency because we're providing the dollars, even though it doesn't belong to us as far as the, the amount of money. Why aren't we using that for more leverage? If we w really want influence within Iraq, and we set up the central bank, this was part of the repercussions of the war, 
Is it the opportunity for leverage, for intelligence gathering? Is there something there for us? Look, there, there is leverage. The problem is, is that we've basically said that we don't have a problem with Iran any longer uh, you know, uh, through the nuclear deal. And so the Iranians are going to have their way over there regardless. We're talking about leaving Iraq to the extent that we can. And so leaving Iraq, but leaving our dollars leaving because our, the economy is still set up on the U.S. dollar. That's right. So continuing to help them hmm. uh, in as a sort of a lingering policy as a, as an involved forever. Now, uh, you've heard about NASA's famous, super expensive toilets and really crazy expensive pens. What about a forty three million dollar gas station? Have you heard about that? Well, there's one over in Afghanistan. The problem is it's supposed to cost a lot less than that. Talk about government waste. This is actually cool to you. A $43 million gas station paid for by you, the taxpayer, and the inspector general finding the gas station, which is in Afghanistan, should have cost $500,000, but you paid $43 million. And more disgusting? Not Greta, though. Greta doesn't pay her taxes. The Pentagon can't even say why it paid so much. It doesn't even know. Illinois Congressman Adam Kinsinger is here. Good evening, sir. Hey, Greta. Um, what do you say? It's ludicrous, and it's not, you know, this has been going on in Afghanistan for a while, going on in Iraq during the reconstruction there. And this, frankly, happens here in the United States. Government is unable sometimes to explain where money was spent. There's so much waste that goes into things. And any of your viewers that, you know, have been in the military know the story. There's always a story about a base that gets bracked or shut down, but right before they shut it down, they build a new front gate or build a new command post or something in it. And for some reason, in, in, in 30 years or longer, we have not been able to get on our hands he, around how to fix a, a ludicrous problem like this. People should just stop stealing. Look, when you, when right. you spend $43 million to build a $500,000 gas station, something's wrong. And this is what the inspector <laughs> general said in, in the report. And shame on the Pentagon for this. In part, writes, one of the most troubling aspects of this project is that the Department of Defense claims that it's unable to provide an explanation for the high cost of the project or to answer any other questions concerning its planning, implementation, or outcome. That is pretty bad. That is pretty, pretty bad. Uh, and if you didn't catch it last week, uh, speaking of expenses, Obama has approved the deployment of additional U.S. forces in Syria. I'm going to just give you a little backgrounder on that because that's going to be pretty relevant going forward uh, for the rest of the coverage here for the next couple of segments. Good evening. The American footprint of the war against ISIS is about to get bigger. Whether you call it boots on the ground or advisors, as the White House is calling it, for the first time, American ground troops are going to be based inside Syria. The Americans, all from special operations units, will be fewer than 50. Their mission, says the White House, to assist local fighters. It's a major policy shift that has many wondering whether the door has just been cracked open to an even deeper American ground rule. Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel has the story tonight. After thousands of airstrikes against ISIS in Iraq and Syria and 3,000 troops back to Iraq, today the White House announced a new step. The decision that the president has made is to send fewer than 50 special operations forces to Syria. In other words, American boots on the ground in Syria, something the president has said would never happen. I won't commit our troops to fighting another ground war in Iraq or in Syria. But today the White House argued nothing has changed. The troops will stick to an advisory role. They will not be in a in a combat mission. Their mission is... That's not their mission, but they could find themselves in a combat situation. There is no denying the amount of risk that they are, are taking on here, and they will be equipped to defend themselves if necessary. That left some military experts skeptical and angry. This is domestic politics. Uh, there's an element of Alice in Wonderland to this uh, press announcement. I think it's uh, been rare 
in American military history to have seen micromanagement of military operations on the level of this White House. That's an interesting point. Uh, it does feel like the White House is micromanaging this at a level that is unprecedented. Like, that's been happening more and more. I mean, it feels like it started with Bush, but the Obama administration has really been micromanaging the war against ISIS. Uh, it seems like they're even, you know, up still making the call on some of the strikes, even. It's very odd. It's very micromanaged. It feels, it feels very political. American military history to have seen micromanagement of military operations on the level of this White House. The announcement came on the same day that talks on Syria began in Vienna, the U.S., Russia, Turkey, and Iran. But the change in military policy has been in the works a long time. Well, the decision to send some U.S. special forces into Syria is a recognition that simply what we were doing wasn't working. The situation on the ground was, was continuing to deteriorate. A U.S. official tells NBC News the new plan is a three-pronged approach. In northern Syria, dozens of American special operations forces will deploy alongside Kurdish and some Arab fighters to battle ISIS. In northern Iraq, the U.S. plans to have a rapid reaction force to back up the U.S. troops and their allies. And in Turkey, more airstrikes launched from the Interlik base by more aircraft. Now, all of this is really remarkable because not only is it more boots on the ground, but I want to remind you how it's all been authorized. It's all, none of this has been authorized by Congress. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I want you to keep that in mind as we go forward. Now, I, this next clip, uh, Obama recently went on NBC News, and the interviews are long and meandering, so instead of playing the entire thing, I'm going to play a clip that actually plays the clips. And uh, this goes into some of the things Obama said, because really, if you think about it, this is, uh, a lot of people say well, Obama has broken a lot of promises. Gitmo still open, you know, all of the things that he promised would happen, you know, the war in Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, still going on. No boots on the ground, no boots on the ground. Now he's putting boots on the ground in Syria. And he says, well, look, this is nothing new. And so this clip goes into that a little bit. President Obama speaking out for the first time about the plan to put U.S. troops in Syria. The interview coming just three days after the White House announced up to 50 special operations forces will be deployed to assist Kurdish and Arab forces. The decision apparently reversing his pledge not to put boots on the ground, but the president insists the U.S. is not putting soldiers on the front lines. Keep in mind that we have run special uh, ops already, and really this is just an extension of what we were uh, continuing to do. What I love is his kind of indignant attitude here. Keep in mind, we've been running special ops missions before. Just because we haven't been telling you about them very clearly, and we've kind of been lying, and we've been using weasel words to make it not very clear what's happening, and you didn't pick it up or report on it properly, well, it doesn't mean we haven't been doing it. And this is really just a continuation of that. And now we're just kind of being public about it, because Russia's making a lot of big fusses over there, so we want to make a little bit of a fuss. And, you know, we were getting caught anyways. It's becoming obvious, and people are starting to find out about it. So now we're just kind of making our plans more obvious to sort of push back against people that are saying, well, look how... St Remember something we've been saying for the last few weeks on this show is if Putin keeps going over into Syria and bombing these targets, people are going to start wanting to work with them to fight to push back against these extremists. And then what happened? Iraq invites Russia in to do airstrikes. And this was sort of like, I think, our version of rattling the cage and say, well, look, we're doing this. And then, and then Obama's able to sit here in a position and say, well, look, we've been doing this all along. Very factually true. Very factually true. And he's able to he's able to almost say it in an indignant way, like, you didn't figure that out. But it, 
they were the ones that obfuscated, obfuscated, geez, I'm having a hard time talking tonight. They're the ones that made it hard to understand what was really going on in the first place. And really, this is just an extension of what we were uh, continuing to do. We are not putting U.S. troops on the front lines fighting firefights with ISIL. But I, I've been consistent throughout that we are not going to be fighting like we did in Iraq. With battalions and occupations, yeah. as he finished that that thought. So there is uh, so there is Obama's response to, hey, you, you're going back on your word. Now I want to return to why all of this is authorized and why it's always important to remember that we have to somewhat link ISIS to Al-Qaeda. Eighteen minutes past the hour, the president's war powers. For all its criticism of the Bush administration, the Obama administration is relying on the exact same authorization for the use of military force that was signed into law on September the 18th, 2001. That was meant for President Bush to go after Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, which took the planes, which took the buildings down and hit the Pentagon in Shanksville. He sent troops into Afghanistan and then <laughs> into Iraq. President Obama's lawyers argue the law still works to fight the new enemy, the Islamic State, and to fight them in a new place in Syria. With us now is Professor of Law at American University's Washington College of Law, Steve Vladek. Sir, good afternoon. Is this legal? Uh, well, Shep, I think that's a great question, and I think it really boils down to what you just teed up, which is, does this 14-year-old statute, the authorization for the use of military force, really apply to ISIS? The Obama administration has been arguing for the better part of 14 months that it does, um, and all the while, as you noted in your last segment, Congress has done nothing. So, you know, I think it's a close call, but I think Congress really has an obligation to step up and say something if they really think it's not. So this guy says it's a close call. It's a close call if, if, if Congress should be doing this sort of Obama shit. And I'm, what I really like about that is such a typical TV pundit thing to say, and Shep actually calls him on it. You think it's a close call that the Congress of the United States should step in on and have a debate and authorize one way or the other whether our troops are sent to war? That's a close call, Professor? No, I don't think it's a close call that Congress should step in, Shep. I think the one thing on which everyone in this town and indeed everyone in this country agrees is that it would be better if Congress were to step in. I think the question is what happens if Congress doesn't step in? It hasn't yet. And I think that's where the legal argument gets a little bit closer because it all turns on whether we really do accept the notion that ISIS is basically a successor to al-Qaeda um, and that it's therefore covered by that statute. Shep, I completely agree that we would all be better off if Congress were to actually step in pass a new statute and update the law to adjust for the threat we face today. The hard question is what happens until and unless Congress does that. So far, we've seen no indication that Congress has any interest in, you know, accepting that responsibility. You can do illegal things as long as you want, unless and until somebody catches you. And in, in this case, unless and until somebody of standing comes to a court of record and, 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 and calls you out on it. Who has standing? Who could do such a thing? You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's unusual to find anyone in this case who's going to have standing, perhaps a service member who is worried about being deployed unlawfully. Isn't that an interesting question? Isn't that it with somebody who could actually push back against the president? Who actually could do that? That's a fascinating question. But, Shep, I got to tell you, if we look at the precedents from the Vietnam War, if we look at the precedents from the first Gulf War in the early 1990s, the courts are not going to step in in this kind of fact pattern when you've got Congress having passed at least one statute sort of on point. You've got Congress appropriating money for this use of force. You've got Congress authorizing the deployment of troops for training and equipping. In other words, the longer we go on where, where the president takes unilateral action and deploys the military and then Congress sort of backs him up on the back end, unofficially, officially, 
the longer they set precedent, the harder it's ever going to get to undo this. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. You know, I think from the court's perspective, that's not nearly enough to raise the kinds of separation of powers problem that you and I might think exists. That's why this is really about the politics, which is why Congress has to step back in and not the law. Uh, but Congress only has to step back in if Congress's constituents stand up and demand that they do so. If they demand that their representatives get up in front of the nation and make a debate, here are the reasons why this is in the United States national interest. Here are the reasons this is an imperative for our nation to send our young men and women into harm's way. And here are the reasons that it is not that debate. Don't the American people deserve that debate? Didn't the founding fathers suggest that that is what we deserve? Absolutely. And Shep, I mean, let me just say as, as forcefully as I can, I think Democrats, Republicans, independents, folks of any political persuasion should want that debate to happen. The only people in this country right now who seem completely disinterested in that conversation are the 535 elected representatives on Capitol Hill. And I think that's shirking their constitutional responsibility in ways that give the president, President Obama, whoever his successor is, um, the ability to use war powers in ways that the founders would have been very nervous about. We want this kind of democracy democratic buy-in without Congress stepping to the plate, I think we're going to see more and more of this drift where presidents are able to rely upon older and older and perhaps less and less apt statutes to go after an ever-increasing array of terrorist organizations. Steve Vladek, professor at American University, Washington College of Law, sir. It's good of you. Thank you. I know that was a little Thank head you, numbing. The reason for I know it was a little head numbing, but I think that was actually a pretty interesting bit is all of this, all of this being authorized. All of this being authorized by that War Powers Act. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? All right. So uh, we do uh, a lot of different coverage here on the Unfiltered Show. And uh, some pe sometimes people that are new to the show go like, whoa, 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 there's a lot of RT in this show today. Or, whoa, there's a lot of Fox News in this show. Uh, we don't often get people overreacting to BBC News, NPR, Al Jazeera, or CNN. And uh, I just want to address that for a minute, because uh, the Unfilter show is a listener-supported show, patreon.com slash unfilter. We're supported by our audience, and uh, that keeps us oriented and pointed at you. That makes you our priority, and so I want to address this for a minute. I have kind of a, a, I have a lot of different thoughts on this topic, but just sort of the one I want to touch on today, and maybe in a future episode I'll touch on some of the other ones, is uh, I look at all forms of media as valuable. Even your Alex Jones and your Glenn Becks and your Rush Limbaugh's, uh, I don't find them palatable as much, but I find them valuable in, in as much as it is valuable to take note of the meta message they are trying to communicate. Uh, and they can, I apply that same rule set to Fox News uh, or uh, RT. And uh, in, so, in so much that if you watch it with the perspective of what it is and where it comes from and what motivates them, then you are able to walk away with not only the information they wanted to relay to you, but you can also infer the information that they are specifically trying to infer you away from or trying to point you away from, especially if you're well-informed on the matter. And so I think the key to when you consume this media is to make sure that you're not just listening to one outlet's perspective. And so on the Unfilter show, we blend all of this. So a lot of times, and this is something I think maybe people don't understand, is a lot of times we'll play a clip. That same clip exists from three other networks and maybe three or four print outlets or, you know, online article outlets. Now you're hearing one that we have selected from all of them. 
It doesn't mean that's the only one we it took in, in it took input from. But that's that means that's the one that made it into the show from a production standpoint, from producer Matt's standpoint, and from my standpoint. And so uh, I think sometimes people say, "Oh, that's a lot." Like we just played like three. I think it was like three Fox News clips. Somebody might go, oh, "Wow, they're listening to a lot of Fox News." No, no, no. We also have CNN and all. The, and if you go get the uh, supporter sync, you see a lot of this. I mean, you just see all. You see a lot of this stuff. Not all of it, but you see a lot of it. You see pretty much all of it. Uh, and a lot of times they'll they'll it'll be because the particular category or subject or or segment of the show we're in is really heavy in this particular area that one network is covering more than the other. Like Fox News covers Hillary and Benghazi a lot more, but you just got to make sure you parse it with the right perspective. Same with RT. They're covering uh, Russia's involvement in Syria way more than anybody else's, right? And, of course, the BBC is covering the Syrian, uh, Im- uh, the, uh, the immigration, the migration of all, of all of the refugees much better than, say, CNN is. It's obvious if you think about it. So when you see a network, it don't assume it's the only one we're taking input from. Assume that we're doing meta-analysis, playing them for a subset of reasons. There could be dozens of them behind the scenes. And, of course, you often will have additional references in the supporter sync. Patreon.com slash unfilter if you'd like to keep our show going. We do need more support. We want to uh, try to uh, improve some back-end production things, which is going to include in, uh, um, up some costs. And we would, we would love your support. So I want to shift gears and actually start talking about Russia and Syria. And uh, I, I think this first one's kind of interesting. Now, this would be an example of an area where we'll go into a lot of RT-heavy stuff because this is a category RT's covering. But a lot of times you'll hear me interrupt with a counterbalance, or sometimes I won't because sometimes it's right. I'd say about 75% of the time they're right, and then the rest is all trash, and it's really what you got to be careful. But really, the way RT does it, and you're going to hear it in this first clip I'm going to play, is they're not actually inaccurate. It's how they frame it. They f- they're going to frame this with, hoorah, Russia. Look how good Russia's doing. And then, oh, by the way, the West is saying we're doing this. That's how they'll frame this. And that isn't so much, they're not lying. But it, it is actually a better form. It's, 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 it's the real true form of propaganda where you just frame the narrative in a way that it lulls the listener into forming their own conclusions. So watch this first clip. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful example of Russia Today propaganda. Now, when we brought this in for clip selection, we knew that. And we, when we decided to play it, we knew that. And, and so these are things that we, we are cognizant of when we make our decision. And we assume our audience is very smart. Or I'll make a disclaimer like this and be like, this is a great example of RT propaganda. Factually accurate, but starts with how... It's, this is a story to counteract the false story that Russia bombed a hospital. You all heard about uh, the Pentagon bombing uh, doctors without borders. Well, now there's a story out there that Russia bombed a hospital. It turns out probably bogus. And RT wants to fight it. So they start, that, they start their counter-narrative with, uh, look how awesome we're doing in the fight against ISIS, by the way. And it's almost like this awkward, by the way, where they start talking about... The actual reason this clip exists is to, to do the counter-narrative about bombing the hospital from Russia's standpoint. Russian jets hit over 200 terror targets in eastern and northern Syria just over the weekend. These are pictures of some of the latest airstrikes. That's a warehouse being destroyed. The uh, Ministry of Defense saying inside there were 10 cars loaded with bombs. Also, here is a jet said to be targeting an explosives plant in the Aleppo province. Are you getting how awesome Russia is right now, right? This is the hoorah section. So they're going to talk about this hospital bombing story, but you got to set it up. This is real propaganda. 
See, everybody that, this is what gets me so angry, is everybody's like, oh, Fox News, they say things that are inflammatory. Fox News doesn't give a crap about right or left. Fox News works for the military-industrial complex. And whichever candidate's going to pump that money machine, that's the one they care about. That's what motivates Fox News. And you don't understand it because they don't come right out and say it. It's how they cover the stories. It's how they frame the story. It's they know. See, this is their job. This is what they do for a living. And they know how to make the viewer create their own narrative. I know that's hard to hear because what I'm telling you is they're manipulating you, if you think about it. But that's exactly what they're doing. They know they are manipulating you. They know that if they tell you these facts, show you these imagery, and tell you these things, you will start to form your own conclusion. And the reason why that's brilliant is because if they can lead you down the path to form your own conclusion, you are so much more likely to be solid and believe that conclusion than if they just tell you. If they just told you Russia didn't bomb the hospital and Russia's kicking ass in Syria, if they just came out and said that, you'd be like, yeah, of course Russia Today says that. They're Russia Today. If they show you the data and they, and they just structure the story in such a way, they're just structuring the story in such a way that you walk that own conclusion yourself, this is actual propaganda. Because it, you lead yourself down the conclusion path, you become a firm believer in that conclusion because you internally generated it, and then you believe it. This is true, genuine propaganda. I'm going to back it up for 20, back 20 seconds. Listen to this. Remember, this is a clip refuting the fact that Russia bombed a hospital. I want you to pay attention how it starts out, how they're building the narrative, and then tell me that all of the other networks don't do the same exact damn thing. 100 terror targets in eastern and northern Syria just over the weekend. These are pictures of some of the latest airstrikes. That's a warehouse being destroyed. The uh, Ministry of Defense saying inside there were 10 cars loaded with bombs. Also, here is a jet said to be targeting an explosives plant in the Aleppo province. Let's give you now the very latest pictures right from the Russian airbase in Latakia, from where the planes launch on their sorties. Moscow's been targeting Islamic State and other terror groups in Syria for over a month now. But it was recently alleged that Russian jets destroyed a hospital in the city of Samin, uh, causing the Russian Defense Ministry to, uh, well, call on journalists to double-check the stories they publish. If you didn't catch it, that was the awkward transition now to the hospital story. How weird was that? We're 45 seconds in, and now we're just talking about the whole reason this clip exists. And that was a very awkward transition. Essentially, instead of saying, uh, we might have bombed a hospital, they're saying, well, the defense guy says, journalists need to double-check their facts. I call on the respected mass media not to jeopardize their reputation by publishing fakes like this. <laughs> it's not just the media. The accusations are actually picked up by the U.S. State Department. And to prove the hospital is... Now, I do love this. So uh, and this is something that Russia does a lot. And I feel bad that they have to consistently do this. And they do a good job, too. They, ha they hold a, a press conference. Everybody comes. And then they give a presentation about how, why what you're being told in the mainstream media is crap. And it's good stuff. Like, they publish the data. Like, it's good stuff. Uh, nobody listens, nobody runs with it, well, except for RT. Uh, and I feel bad for Russia, because they're like, well, look, if you just took a photo of the place, you could see that the hospital is actually uh, just fine. T totally intact, uh, the Russian Defense Ministry provided up-to-date satellite photographs. Guy and A. Chichikan went to ask the State Department, simply put, where are they getting their information from? 
Some accuse Russia of hitting six hospitals in Syria. Others accuse it of hitting just one. Many media outlets ran with the story, but no one could independently verify the claims. Many there say were Russian or regime airstrikes. Aid workers are out and say, run, the plane is coming back. One strike and then another to catch the first responders. That time all the people were gathered and it shot two missiles again. The reports primarily cite a U.S.-based NGO called Syrian American Medical Society, which... If it's ever an NGO, if it's ever an NGO, if it, if it ever is, just don't, 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 right there, stop right there, go Google them, see who's on the board, see what's up. That right there is a red flag. Published this photo of the hospital allegedly destroyed by Russia in the town of Sarmin. Russia's defense ministry says whatever it is, it's not the hospital in Sarmin and releases aerial images of what it says is the hospital in Sarmin. The building on this image, dated October 31st, does not look like it was recently bombed. How can we tell if it's the hospital in Sarmin? A year ago, a video was posted on YouTube that shows the hospital under construction. Here's a screenshot from that year-old video. And here is the Russian Defense Ministry's aerial image of what it says is the hospital. We see a similar dome-shaped structure next to the building on both images. We see a wall or a fence positioned in a similar way. So where exactly is the hospital that Russia is accused of hitting? Last week, the U.S. State Department spokesman John Kirby dropped the bombshell saying the U.S. had quote-unquote operational intelligence that Russia had hit a hospital in Syria. We've seen some information that would lead us to believe that uh, Russia, Russian military aircraft did hit uh, a hospital. This Monday, I went to ask what hospital did Mr. Kirby mean? Can you really offer no details on the hospital that the U.S. accuses Russia of hitting? We're going to stand by Mr. Kirby's words. You're not even going to say where, where it is, she that hospital that, that you're saying Russia hit? What we're saying is that we have seen information that Russia is targeting civilian infrastructure. But um, he, and we he, would he point spoke you to the Syrian NGOs on the ground, as well as open source reporting on that. He spoke about his open source reporting, NGOs on the ground and open source reporting. Screw them for taking our words. Screw them. Civilian infrastructure. But um, he, and we he, would he point spoke you to the Syrian NGOs on the ground as well as open source reporting on that. He spoke about a specific hospital in Syria. Where exactly is it? What details can you offer about that hospital? Again, I'm not going to get into this sort of detail of operational assessment for this. Maybe you should speak to the Russians on their targeting. Uh, <laughs> all right. Now, I love that line. And that's one of my faves. Now, hold on, though. I do want to find a little bit. I want to bring you in up. Syria. Now, hold on. We don't need to get any more into this. But uh, this is another clip of her on another day talking to Kirby, trying to get a real information out of Kirby. Uh, who? Where are you getting your information, she wants to know. Who Who says we struck a hospital? Because we don't, we're taking pictures of the building and it looks fine. To see whether the U.S. government had any evidence, here's what I got. This morning, RT, RT uh, interviewed the director of operations at the International Committee of the Red Cross, Dominique Stillhart, and we asked him about allegations that Russia bombed hospitals in Syria. And he said that Red Cross personnel on the ground in Syria uh, have not reported any such incidents. Do you have any evidence that Russia bombed hospitals in Syria? We've seen some information that would lead us to believe that uh, Russia... 
Russian military aircraft did hit uh, a hospital. Can you share evidence of that? Those no, are very serious allegations. Reports uh, are not enough, are they? Uh, can you offer I think uh, I a, just something did. more solid than reports? This guy. I think I just did. I said we have... We have they are so disrespectful. We have uh, operational reporting that would lead us to believe that that's the case. Um, can you share that? No, I'm not going to talk about... I'm not going to share... And I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. Intelligence and operational information here from this podium. Have you confronted Russia with your evidence that it hit hospitals in Syria? Evidence that you say the U.S. has? I'm not going to read out our diplomatic discussions, and I've answered your question, and I think I've gone as far with it as I'm going to go. Is that a no or yes? I've Is, gone as you... far with it as I'm going to go. It's negative in the freedom dimension. And that's it. He shuts her down right there. He shuts her down right there. And then uh, uh, when asked if uh, the U.S. is going to come to the table and talk with all of the interested parties over in Syria, uh, no, you know, it's premature. We're not going to Moscow has invited representatives of the Syrian government and opposition groups to hold talks here in the Russian capital next week. The aim? To try to find a solution to the long-running civil war and to try to coordinate joint action against Islamic State. But Washington's expressed doubts over the meeting. You know, Russian actions so far in Syria have been... This is Kirby's uh, fill-in um, spokesperson to prop up for the State Department. The regime. The Russians will hold a meeting between the regime and the opposition. Are you aware of this meeting and what do you think about it? We believe there's a time and a place for everything. Um, there'll be a time and place when the opposition groups will be represented. We just don't think we're there yet. We think it's premature. No, no, no. This is not. The, this is a meeting that the Russians are going to host. Know. We Are think you, it's premature. Oh, you don't. You think the Russians should not invite Syrians to Moscow? We think that it is premature to have that meeting. We think that there is a place for the Syrian opposition and a time for the Syrian opposition to gather to have those conversations. We think it's premature now. Um, can, can I just ask, why is any of your business? Why do you oppose <laughs> Russia inviting Syrian opposition figures to ha to a meeting in Moscow in, in Russia? Right. So why would why would let let's play that back because that's a pretty that's a pretty damn good question. Syrian opposition figures to ha to a meeting in Moscow in, in Russia. Why, well, why, we, why? we think it's premature. We think it's premature before the Vienna group meets again. But we do think it's premature to have those conversations when the post-Vienna work is still going on. Conversations? That was seven, by the way. That was seven uh, prematures uh, to have those conversations. And uh, last but not least, you can see RT. It's a major, major issue. So it's time that the U.S. government turns its attention to the RT propaganda machine. On Tuesday, an American Senate committee spent two hours discussing the supposed threat posed by Russia. But it wasn't the military they were focusing on. Vladimir Putin's disinformation. Russian propaganda. The Kremlin's attack on the truth. Russian propaganda. Mr. Putin's deception. 75% propaganda and 25% violence. Now, we were just talking about this, weren't we? So uh, this is a very pertinent clip. And uh, I'm, well, I'll let them explain. Our network's been mentioned more than once at that hearing. RT's Ganachicha Khan has more on what exactly was said. Having watched the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee hearing titled Putin's Invasion of Ukraine and the Propaganda that Threatens Europe, we at RT have learned something new about ourselves. Just to be on the safe, safe side, though, RT, uh, which does not broadcast in Russian, never identifies itself as a Russia-based and government-funded network. 
The fact that RT is Russia-based is in its name, which stands for Russia Today. Not so obvious to Leon Aaron, a member of the BBG, organization that runs U.S. government-funded media, including Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. From him, we also learned this about RT. RT is hardly this, uh, you know, all-powerful, seductive monster. Credible polling that was done in Western Europe, that barely registered. Very negligible. Uh, Russia is not, uh, Russia, uh, Russia today is not all-powerful at all. You know, RT is a glamour project. I hear that all the time from U.S. officials. And then at the same time, they're like, oh, but it's a major problem. It's a major problem. Interesting perspective, if not confusing, considering a good part of the hearing was dedicated to how the U.S. should counter RT. Time and talent and task and risk-taking innovation and, yes, money for U.S. international media will continue to be needed to counter this effort. Obviously, Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, these things are very strong in the Cold War. If you're not familiar with uh, Radio Free Europe and Voice of America, that's essentially the United States version of RT. Yeah, you think RT's awful? You think it's so horrible? Guess what? We have our own version. We've had it for a long time. Where, the, where do you think they got the idea for RT from? On a scale of 1 to 10, let's say 10 is the most effective. Let's say that's our countermeasures that we were employing in the Cold War. Where, how low did it go and where are we at right now? I think we're at a 3 or 4. RT at 10 right now? I, I don't give them, I don't over give them, but I would say they are a seven to eight. Pretty darn good. How low did we go? We have a long way to climb before we can be as omnipresent as Russian influence is today. You know, don't undersell what the State Department does on Twitter. Don't undersell what the State Department does on Twitter. They're doing some amazing, amazing work on Twitter. An expert on digital media said this about our team. We tweet, but we tweet to send long press releases to someone that quite frankly, no one really cares about. And we send out YouTube videos that put us to sleep. Whereas Russia Today, today, in fact, is able to claim to have more than 2 billion viewers as the largest network, Russian news network, uh, online. So we have to transform the way we communicate in that space. Otherwise, we're gonna, gonna lose the battle. Overall, it was a somewhat Cold War-style hearing, with the main undercurrent being us versus them. In Washington, I'm Ganesh Chekyan, RT. Yeah, Gunnar mentioned the, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, or the BBG. Now, there have been calls for more involvement of that organization in countering so-called Russian propaganda. The BBG oversees U.S. government-funded foreign media projects. Indeed, Secretary of State John Kerry is among its board members. Its budget this year is $721 million. Woo! And uh, in 2016, they're set to get even more funding next year. Emmy-winning radio host and media critic Lionel told us before labeling something propaganda, you really need to know what the definition of the word means. So uh, 2016, $751 million for uh, the uh, group that runs Radio Free Europe. See, this is why it really matters, the motivation of the people behind your media. Patreon.com slash unfilter. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, not just, I'm not just saying that. Like, it really does... It really does matter. Uh, all right, so let's talk about this uh, Metrojet crash, and uh, let's go back to Lester for an update on the latest. Good evening. The unidentifiable sounds investigators have now heard on the cockpit voice recorder of that doomed Airbus jetliner have only deepened the intrigue over how and why it broke up and crashed over Egypt's Sinai Desert. Whatever it was scattered the wreckage for miles and killed 224 people aboard a kind of plane millions of us have traveled on. 
American satellite data is starting to help discount at least one theory as investigators turn some of their focus now to who was on board the plane. NBC's Tom Costello has late details on the investigation. New video from the crash site in the Sinai tonight as U.S. intelligence sources say none of the passengers or crew members on the plane's manifest were on any U.S. terrorism database. U.S. satellites did detect an infrared flash heat signature at the same time and altitude as the plane's last known location, but there's no evidence of a missile strike. Russia's transport minister going on TV tonight to say investigators have been combing through the debris field scattered over seven miles. Our experts have already examined the crash site and the state of the flight data recorders. Russia's Interfax News Agency reports those recorders in the cockpit captured sounds uncovered characteristic of a standard flight just before the plane disappeared from radar. And tonight, Russian media report no signs of explosive trauma on the bodies of the victims. The question, was there a bomb on board or did a catastrophic mechanical failure occur in mid-flight? If you have a pressurized environment such as an aircraft cabin, Obviously, a fracture is very serious and could potentially bring the aircraft down. So did a repair job after the tail struck the ground 14 years ago play a role? Former NTSB investigator Greg Fife. This is the tail section that separated from the airplane in flight. This would have been the area of the tail strike, and this entire area would have been where the major repairs were performed. The plane was registered in Ireland, but operated and maintained by Metrojet with Russian oversight. Today, Irish authorities told NBC News that as of last May, the plane's certifications were all in order. So tonight, four days after the crash, the two key possibilities on the table are a mechanical failure that led to a fire or possibly an explosion in flight or a bomb. Security teams are now reviewing the procedures. Of I'm going to fry just some bacon. I don't actually think this is what's going on. Uh, I just wanted to point it out. Isn't it interesting that not too long after the uh, Deutsch present their results for the uh, plane that was brought down to the Ukraine, that they say that the Russians brought down, that a Russian plane was brought down. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting timing on that. Uh, but of course, U.S. officials are saying it's not anything uh, from like, it's nothing. It's a it's nothing like a mechanical problem. It's not a failure of the engines. No, 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 no. It's ISIS. When Metrojet Flight 9268 took off, the autopilot was set for 32,000 feet. The plane climbed steadily, but never made it to the desired altitude. At just over 30,000 feet, the plane dives rapidly plunging at 300 miles per hour. The confirmation that this airplane was falling at such a rapid speed uh, vertically and horizontally indicates that this airplane was a brick. At some point in time, something caused it to be a brick. A possible bomb on board Metrojet 9268 is now the leading theory for both U.S. intelligence and British officials tonight. We cannot categorically say uh, why the Russian jet uh, crashed. But we have become concerned uh, that the plane uh, may well have been brought down uh, as a result of an explosive device. All UK flights to and from Egypt's Sinai Peninsula have been halted. This feels, that right there feels like pressure. They're putting pressure on somebody for something. There's something at play here that I, that to me doesn't make sense. Why would you halt all flights? If they're going to bomb a plane, they would just take a different flight. And you could just double down on the screening process. It feels like pressure. 
Because sometimes in the past, for political reasons, we've seen flights shut down to certain regions to put pressure on them. Focus has intensified on the security at Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh airport, where the doomed Russian flight took off. ISIS has been operating successfully. They've, they've done assassinations of, of political leaders in the region. There's no reason to think that they have not been able to essentially uh, compromise the security of the airport. Yeah. I, 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 boy, so, so last week, and I'm glad we're just talking about this now, because initially the ISIS theory was a missile from the ground, which is just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. Uh, so now, now the new theory is ISIS member with a bomb on board. Now, was there a bomb on board that brought this thing down? Maybe I don't know. Even if there was a bomb on board, let's just go. With, let's just let's just walk this logic path. Even if there was somebody that smuggled a bomb on board, maybe they did it in their underwear or a printer cartridge, as Diane Feinstein will tell us. That's very possible. That doesn't mean it had anything to do with ISIS. That doesn't mean, and I know that some group claims. That they some ISIS some ISIS affiliated group claim that does they nobody believes it. This could be an inside operation. Uh, somebody that is, and or or some people that are familiar with how the baggage process works. And and let's not just limit it to the cargo hold. Catering could be involved with this too. Today, Egyptian investigators searched wreckage for clues, including bomb residue, despite the reporting from both U.S. and British officials and another claim of responsibility from ISIS. So far, the Egyptians maintain it's found no evidence of terrorism. Ooh, the ISIS music is playing, guys. This is one way to nail uh, the stability and security of Egypt and the image of Egypt. So far, Russia has publicly maintained it's too early to draw any conclusions. Russian state media reported victims' bodies show no sign of trauma from an explosion. I think the Russians also don't want to show vulnerability to the Islamic State because they're fighting in Syria and the sense that they may be drawing uh, a violence against Russians for what they're doing in Syria may not play very well mm -hmm. in Russia. Yeah, right. So there you go. I'll uh, I'll leave you guys to, if you uh, want to check out the uh, unfiltered supporter sync. Lots of more stuff in there. I want to shift gears to the third uh, Republican debate because I think something happened in this debate that actually matters. Uh, it wasn't anything so much in the questioning. Well, I guess it was the questioning in a sense. Not I don't really want to even debate if it was hard questioning or not. But they have moved the needle now on the types of questions that are going to be asked in this presidential campaign, and I don't think it's for the better. This is a major, major result of the of this latest debate. So I want to bring you up to date, and then we're going to talk about this. And I think I think this is I think this is really bad news. And welcome back to Hannity. So as the dust settles from last night's third GOP debate, the moderators from CNBC they are now facing well deserved widespread backlash. Now, many are claiming their questions were not only unfair but extraordinarily biased. For example, watch this. What is your biggest weakness and what are you doing to address it? Is this a comic book version of a presidential no, campaign? A That's actually not that bad of a question. You have as much chance of cutting taxes that much without increasing the deficit as you would of flying away from that podium by flapping your arms. Really. You'd have to cut government by about 40 percent to make it work with a one point one trillion dollar. It's, it's not true. And, and it when, is true. I looked at the numbers. When we, when we... You said yesterday that you were hearing proposals that were just crazy from your colleagues. Who yeah. are you talking about? Now you're skipping more votes than any senator to run for president. Why not slow down, get a few more things done first, or at least finish what you start? Now that question is obviously a little skewed, but the rest kind of seem fair. 
it raises the question whether you have the maturity and the wisdom to leave a $17 trillion economy. Now, that one obviously is a little rough. What do you say? Unbelievable. Now, naturally, the candidates on the stage did not take this ridiculous line of questioning lying down. They fought back, and I argue they won. Watch this. Now, going into this, uh, boy, boy, is he happy about it, too. <laughs> Look at that smirk. <laughs> uh, they knew it was happening. Right before the debate, it was leaked that the questioning was going to go down like this. So they knew, going out on stage, exactly how the questions were going to go. They had enough. They had hours to prep. They prepared one-liners ahead of time. As a group, they knew what was coming. It's not a very nicely asked question, the way you say that. The questions that have been asked so far in this debate illustrate why the American people don't trust the media. Media. This is not a cage match. And you look at the questions, Donald Trump, are you a comic book villain? Ben Carson, can you do math? John Kasich, will you insult two people over here? Marco Rubio, why don't you resign? Jeb Bush, why have your numbers fallen? How about talking about the substantive issues people care about? Man, that earned him a lot of points. Just listed a litany of uh, discredited attacks from Democrats and my political opponents, and I'm not going to waste 60 seconds detailing them all. If anything comes out of this whole thing with some of these nasty and ridiculous questions... So if you want me to answer, you want to answer. <laughs> because i got to tell you the truth. Even in New Jersey, what you're doing is called rude. So... Uh, so there you go. They knew they were coming. Now, uh, it, this is this next clip here. This guy runs the uh, RNC, and uh, he is absolutely delighted about how this went. He is so happy they asked those questions. He could not be happier because because the, all of the candidates going in knew what was coming. They all got one-liners that won them so much credit with the public. It was really a beautiful moment for each candidate. Got them a ton of credibility. But on top of that, because of the backlash of the questions, now they're all going to be softballs. All the questions are going to be softballs. No more hard questions. And if you don't believe me, look at the guy's reaction that runs the RNC. Oh, he is so upset. He's so angry about it because it went exactly as he wanted. Watch his reaction. It tells you everything you need to see. With reaction to last night's debate, RNC Chairman Reince Priebus, you know, I said last night, Mr. Chairman, that there was a winner last night. That was the Republicans on that stage. The loser was the media. I would argue that long after this, this debate is forgotten, people will remember how arrogant, obnoxious, biased, shallow, agenda-driven that this media is. I said in 2008, the media is dead in America. Journalism's dead. And I'd argue it's now buried as of what happened last night in Boulder, Colorado. I would assume you're pretty ticked off. Oh, I just can't tell you how pissed off I am, but that, yeah, he looks really pissed off. Sounds really pissed off. Let's go and walk it back. Like, let's walk it back. He's not pissed off at all. He's elated. Arrogant, obnoxious. He's so excited. He's bouncing in his chair. The guy that heads up the RNC is bouncing in his chair. He's so elated how this has gone down and how well Sean Hannity is playing into this. Biased, shallow, agenda driven that this says Sean Hannity media is. I said in 2008. The media is dead in America. Journalism's dead. And I'd argue it's now buried as of what happened last night in Boulder, Colorado. I would assume you're pretty ticked off. Oh, I just can't tell you how pissed off I am. But, um, 
You're, you're exactly right. I mean, when you take a deep breath and you take a step back. As in, calm down, it's actually not a big deal. And you say, okay, this is clearly a victory for these candidates on the stage because what they did was extraordinary. And I thought every one of them, I mean, I, Ted Cruz's line, you know, we, we're calling that the Cruz missile, but <laughs> all the rest of them, too, did such a good job in the face of just... It was insanity. I mean, it, uh, just sitting there seething through this thing. I mean, other than, you know, thinking about hitting the circuit breaker in the auditorium that crossed my mind. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this guy is elated at how this has gone down. It's great for them. And you know what? Now the next debate, too, they're playing hardball, right? They're setting up rules, doing negotiations. Tonight, the Republican Party is taking revenge on NBC. I was very disappointed in the moderators. I'm disappointed in CNBC. The chairman of the Republican National Committee telling NBC Brass in a letter it is suspending the partnership for February's debate, saying this week's debate moderated by CNBC was conducted in bad faith. It's, it, you know why? It's, you know why? Because the ratings are down. That's why. The ratings are way down. Just like I said they would be last week. The ratings are way down. That's why they're suspending the next debate. Let's talk about the TSA. Everybody loves us, the TSA, right? It keeps us safe, makes sure we're secure. Uh, I love a good cop. I mean, what, 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 what cop and feel? What? No, no, the TSA. Well, this just in some new airport security gaps revealed in congressional testimony by the inspector general of the TSA. This after that embarrassing report earlier this year, embarrassing and frightening, showing undercover investigators able to smuggle mock explosives and weapons past screeners an incredible 67 out of 70 times. Now, this testimony suggests things have not improved. Doug McElway has more from Washington. Doug? Indeed, Jen, it was, it was last May that DHS red team testers carrying those mock bombs, weapons, and other prohibited items got through airport security 67 out of 70 times, as you said, a failure rate of 95%. It was a massive embarrassment, one that the agency sought to improve upon. Well, fast forward to today. The new TSA administrator, Peter Neffinger, testified before the House Oversight Committee about new testing that was done just this past September. The test results were disappointing and troubling. We ran multiple tests using different concealment methods at eight different airports of different sizes, including large Category X airports across the country, and tested airports who were using private screeners. The results were consistent across every airport. And so just what were those results? Well, we don't know. They're classified. Would it be fair to say without compromising secu security uh, uh, that some significant breaches occurred? Yes. Well, that may be an understatement. There was no indication today that the new test showed any improvement. Further, the tests were done by ordinary employees of the TSA IG's office who had no expertise in hiding explosives <laughs> or weapons. <laughs> Even when you get this done, you've just, you have created a system that doesn't address the risk. Your chances of failure are almost 100%. Woo! With the current system, even with the training that you employ. In his written testimony, Administrator Neffinger cited one cause of this kind of failure rate, quote, 
Pressures driven by increasing passenger volume and increasing checkpoint screening of baggage due to fees charged for checked bags, as well as inconsistent or limited enforcement of size requirements for handheld bags and the one bag plus one personal item. It making it too convenient. That's the problem. He cited other causes. The TSA is plagued by bad morale, but mostly the pressure to get passengers through to their flights. Not cons not security concerns is the main driver of the TSA. Asked by one. Yeah, well, what do you think when you're completely ineffective? Yeah, I think that would become the main driver. I think so. Yeah, check it out. In uh, the show notes, we have uh, more information about this, or I'm sorry, in the supporter sync, more information about this if you find this to be interesting. I want to wrap it up on a high note. Uh, Ohio was voting to legalize cannabis, but uh, there was some issues that got in the way. Let's wrap it up on our high note. Ohio voters say said no to legalizing recreational medical marijuana. Jews's vote was recreational medical marijuana. That's not that's not the that is not the same thing. Was two to one against the measure. It would have made Ohio the most populated state to allow general pot use. Adriana Diaz is outside the state house in Columbus with reaction to the vote. Adriana, good morning. Good morning. Voters here in Ohio voted overwhelmingly against the constitutional amendment to legalize marijuana. The decision came after months of controversy and debate about the group backing the legislation. This is a bump in the road. Supporters of Issue 3, an initiative to legalize medical and recreational marijuana in Ohio, are regrouping after voters strongly shut down the measure on Tuesday. Never have we seen a proposed amendment this detailed uh, for a small handful of people. State Representative uh, Mike Curtin and other local plan. lawmakers opposed the bill, saying it would create a marijuana monopoly in the state, giving control over production to a small handful of wealthy people. The financial backers of a pro-legalization campaign called Responsible Ohio. That would be the sticky bit I was talking about. The law would have allowed them to grow marijuana exclusively at 10 privately owned locations. My issue is not legalization of marijuana. My issue is not using the state constitution to carve yourself a business exclusive. Even some supporters of issue three were concerned about its economic model. I was really initially excited about the amendments uh, for marijuana until I got to research it a little bit and realized I'm not a fan of the monopoly situations. Responsible Ohio is made up of 24 known investors, including former pop star Nick Lachey. The group outspent their opponents 20 to 1. We have to assess what all of this means and see if there's a, a will on, on the part of folks to, to go forward. Ohio governor and Republican presidential candidate John Kasich applauded the decision, saying in a statement, at a time when too many families are being torn apart by drug abuse, Ohioans said no to easy access drugs. Oh, man, that is some crap. Meanwhile, go have your prescription drugs and your alcohol. Responsible Ohio says the only reason they went the route of having a small group of investors push to get this on the ballot is because marijuana bills here at the state house have stalled for the last 19 years. They said they'll likely try again next year. Nora. All right, Adriana, thank you so much. There you go. There's the high note. And I actually think that was probably a good call. A monopoly on something you can grow out of the ground doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Doesn't seem like a good idea. And, uh, you know, I actually, I didn't follow that one super closely. It seems inevitable, right? But I guess the way it failed, they made it hard to actually run it again very soon. So it was actually a fairly major failure for people who want to legalize cannabis. Interesting. 
a lot of different things we've talked about. Stuff you probably haven't heard in a lot of other places or places that wouldn't cover this kind of thing. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Would you like to be one of the people that help us move forward this week? I don't think we've had a lot of movement. We could use your support. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Unfilter.reddit.com. That's also where we crowdsource some of our news stories. It's a great news feed for this show. Also, there's a uh, thread over there by Mr. Chase. Unfilter.reddit.com. Go check it out. It's also a great companion to this show. Unfilter.reddit.com. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact if you want to send us in an email. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I meant to mention this towards the top of the show. I will be traveling next week. So right now there's no show planned for next week. Uh, I will be in Colorado. If you're a patron and you're in the Colorado area, send me a tweet. Maybe we could meet up. I'll be there uh, the 12th and the 13th, I think. For just a short period of time, I'm going to be visiting the System76 offices. So that means no unfilter is currently planned for next week. I meant to mention that earlier in the show. If you wouldn't mind showing up in the uh, chat room and letting people know or something, if you could help spread the word since I'm such a jerk, I would really appreciate it. Otherwise, we're live over at jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That's where you go to find out about live times for this show, any kind of schedule changes, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Follow me on Twitter at Chris LES. Also, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover. I'll be doing the rover log while I'm in Colorado traveling, so uh, you can catch that in lieu of a regular show. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Unfilter. If you're a supporter, go get the supporter show. There's a heck of a lot more show. There's clips and more. See you right back here in two weeks.